So welcome back to The Left Lens. We have a very special guest today. Uh, Margaret Kimberly is not here with us, but I am so pleased to be able to introduce David West, who has come as a guest to interview with us, and, and we are very grateful. David West is a two-time All-Star. He retired in 2018 from the NBA after a long career playing for several different teams. He is also a political activist. He is very involved in the movement to ensure that college athletes get paid and that they are supported in their overall careers. And uh, he has also been very vocal about the movement against police brutality and racism in this country. So we're very glad to have him here. Uh, David, how are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Yes, 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 definitely. So am I. So, you know, you you were in the league for quite some time, drafted in that legendary 2003 draft class. You retired in 2018, uh, and you've been very involved politically in the black community as well as with college athletes generally. Uh, please, uh, if, if you don't mind telling readers and viewers just a little bit about yourself and sort of how movement politics have really influenced both your playing career and your life outside of it. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, I'm not really complicated. I try to, you know, I try to just be me. Uh, you know, I was born and raised in Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, lived there for 16 years. Um, you know, I traveled into Brooklyn every weekend with my parents at a very young age, uh, again, until I was about 12 or 13 went to a black Pentecostal church in Brooklyn, in Flatbush. Um, so I was, I was being raised in this, rare, this, in this weird uh, time during the 80s where you had a lot of people coming out of the civil rights movement and then the black power movement of the 70s. Uh, and then the 80s, you had folks transitioning into, you know, you had the sort of that black preacher. Uh, we were very, uh, it was a very, very, um, um, specific kind of religion. Um, I was introduced to Africa and church, you know what I mean? Um, and um, that helped shape me some. I always try to make sure that people understand that about me, that being raised in a, in a Pentecostal black church in the, in the 80s was, you know, it shaped me early on. And then as I, uh, by the time I was eight, uh, there was a uh, a national shooting uh, of Philip Purnell. Uh, he was shot in the back by a police officer in Teaneck, New Jersey. 89, I believe it was. I was eight years old. And that really woke me up. Um, you know, there was, I remember that was the time my mom and dad started talking about, you know, we started having the little black kid talks about the way I should behave and, you know, how interactions with the police may or may not go. You know, we, we had to become aware all of a sudden. And um, from there, uh, you know, another part of me was, you know, as we transitioned, um, my my parents, my grandparents were a little bit older. My, I tell people all the time, my I don't have a grandparent that was born before 19 or after 1924. They've all passed away. So when I was young, you know, my grandparents were in their 70s, their 80s. Uh, my grand, my oldest grandmother was born in 1905. So the things that I was learning uh, at a very young age shaped me differently um you know what we were experiencing and the stories that the grandparents my parents were telling me were uh, were different than some of my peers and so um we were able to uh we moved to south as my grandparents got older 
Uh, I finished high school down south. Uh, went to military school for a year after having some difficulty finishing high school. Um, you know, just going through awkward periods as a young as a young young man trying to figure things out. Got the Hargrave Military Academy. Was able to get some discipline. Um, was introduced to um, by a professor who's uh, or he passed away since passed, but Colonel Sands um, was a history professor at the military school, and he was an anti-war, uh, uh, you know, teacher. And um, I really connected with him around history, um, and he started to introduce me to these different perspectives. Um, and then there were other people in my life that started to feed these other perspectives, and. Uh, you know, I was still a basketball player, though. You know, I, you know, when you're six nine and you got big feet, big hands, it's like you're gonna play basketball. My, I didn't have the the kind of background that um, I would have been able to go to college and continue my education without sports. Um, that was my vehicle. That was what I used. So I was able to use sport to get me into uh, this path of you know churning and working and trying to continue to to evolve and develop and. Uh, you know, I went on to the NBA, had a good college career, went on to the NBA. Uh, but it seemed like every few years there was something going on. While I was in college, there was another police shooting in Cincinnati. Uh, the city went on curfew, went on lockdown. Uh, there were protests. You know, there was stuff going on, on our campus, on the University of Cincinnati's campus. Um, so I was experiencing that uh, and experienced some of that. And these are the things that kind of uh, shaped me along the way, along with, you know, obviously the politics of my parents and politics of, you know, my uncle was a, in the liberation movement. He was a, selling, you know, black liberation books on, in New York City um, through the late 60s and 70s. Um, so, I mean, you know, I've, I've always had this consciousness. It took some time to connect that consciousness and figure out how to mesh it or mend it into the real world, um, particularly when you're like, you know, 17, 18 years old, and you know that basketball is your is your future. So um, as I got older, you know, I got in the NBA, you know, was, was lucky enough to get drafted into the NBA. Um, you know, I guess, and I don't remember much of it, but it's, it's weird. I found a, a video of myself in college giving the presentation on why the legalization of marijuana should, you know, be something on it. And I forgot I had totally done that. Um, but it was, it also reminded me, like, that's why when I got to the NBA, I was getting asked all these questions about marijuana by every team. And I'm just like, what the hell? But then it's like, oh, it's probably because you gave a presentation on why marijuana should be legalized. But, um, you know, my politics started to evolve uh, once I sort of went into that world. Um, one thing that I think people don't realize is, like, a lot of black people, um, particularly, you know, my family was a working class family. My, my dad was a postal, postal worker. He had a second job at a radio station, army reservist. My mom was a stay at home mom. And she taught, uh, you know, she would teach, uh, school uh, at a Christian school. She taught like kindergarten or something. Um, but my family was a working class family. So when I got in the NBA, that was the first time I was around rich people. That was the first time I saw people with money and, um, being someone that doesn't come from money, uh, it was a shock, um, you know, to be honest with you. And it was, um, it was, a, it was an eye-opening experience my first year, particularly because we were in New Orleans. I was drafted to New Orleans, um, in Louisiana, which, uh, you know, Louisiana is a depressed state. And I was really struggling early on with the idea of, 
how do you make this kind of money in a city like New Orleans? And I was I was a rookie, um, wasn't making a whole lot of money in terms of the NBA, but I that was something that I struggled with just figuring out how that worked. And then I started to question um, so much, right? Like our society, like how can we do this? So I started to learn. I I I just started to self. Uh, I became self-taught, I guess you could say. Um, before that point, I was really like a surface, um, I guess a surface thinker, um, meaning like I would listen to what people would say about Dr. King and listen to you know some other folks, but I didn't necessarily start doing the work. I hadn't done the work, you know, like reading the classics and sitting down and really going through them. And so once I got to the NBA, that's when I really got entrenched in terms of I didn't want, you know, to reject this side of myself in terms of uh, politically being conscious, being tied into, you know, the the continuation of the black liberation uh, struggle, um, which had become, you know, with all the different consciousness movements that popped up in New York City in the 90s and the 2000s. And then, you know, people kind of got it kind of went away in, in, the, in, the, in the idea that. Right. All of a sudden now, if you're a, 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 a black person that focuses on race, you're missing the bigger the bigger picture. You're, you're, you're missing the game. And I just that didn't that didn't sit well with me. Um, so, uh, you know, I just again, the NBA is what that environment is really what pushed me to say you got to smarten up. You got to wisen up. You know, I knew about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, but to really get to the heart of some of the issues, particularly how this nation operates. Um, that has been a journey, you know, and I'm still on, you know, and it's really taken me some of uh, the last 20 years or so, um, you know, to really hunker down and become um, you know, politically courageous in terms of my views um, and understanding that, you know, as human beings, we have a right, you know, to push toward what's right um, and always, you know, have our humanity and the impact of what human beings are going to deal with at the forefront in terms of making decisions. And, uh, you know, I just felt, uh, and I still do to this day that you know, we can't allow ourselves to get so bogged down with what, you know, this country is offering, what society is offering. And you not realize that there's this, that there's this innate need, right. As a black person, you know, speaking for myself here now, um, as a black person, um, to figure out a way, to contribute, um, you know, one of my one of my uh, teachers would tell me, you know, push or pull, pushing or pulling, we all got to be moving in the same direction. And so there's there's a uh, again, we'll get into this, you know, throughout the conversation, and I hate to ramble on, but I just, for me politically, it was always around centering who I was as a black person, and I never was willing to sacrifice that even going to a liberal Jesuit school in Cincinnati, which is super conservative, the city, um, uh, you know, being in the NBA, that's a you know, corporation, corp a fortune 500 sort of deal. Um, but I never felt like that was enough. Being in those environments was enough for me to sell who I was as a human being and um, was able to, again, I always tell people I was able to go in and come out unscathed. You know, I didn't have to compromise. I didn't have to, you know, do anything that I felt like um, took away from who I was. Um, never had to, I never 
had to shut up. I never had to mute my voice um, because I think, you know, my first few years is really hunkering down on reading and becoming more, uh, uh, having a deeper understanding of, the, you know, fundamentally how you know, racism works in this society, how global white supremacy works, how uh, systemic racism in America specifically works. Um, these were the things that uh, I had to reconcile with all while being in the NBA. And, um, you know, even in the NBA, again, I always felt like I had to balance. I was met with people who say, well, wow, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be in the NBA. Again, this is maybe what you, you talked, we talked about earlier is certain people within the struggle will say, well, why are you in the NBA, brother? You should just leave the NBA. And well, look, man, I play basketball and I really, really, really love playing basketball. And I, I, again, was not willing to give up playing the game that for me as a goofy kid, and I'm confident to say that now, basketball was where I built my, built myself personally. Like I didn't have any confidence away from the basketball court when I was a 14 or 15 year old kid. You know, I didn't have confidence in my ability to speak and talk and do all these different things. So the sport helped me evolve. And then my own personal education um, kept me grounded and kept me moving um, in the right direction. And like I said, was able to go in and come out unscathed, you know, maintain my, my humanity, maintain my sanity, um, and never have to, you know, you know, give up any part of myself, um, you know, to stay in the NBA. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, what I heard there, too, is is this notion of discipline and, and political education that, that we at Black Agenda Report focus so much on. Because as you know, and, and as I'm sure our viewers know right now, we are in an unprecedented moment in the United States and in the world because we know that the United States is an imperial hegemon. And we're in a moment of a global pandemic that's killing millions and that has killed that will kill hundreds of thousands before the new year here in the United States. We also have an economic crisis, a great depression, really, that's afflicting right. working people. And we have this uprising against racist policing, which if people have been watching what's going on in Portland and Chicago is still very much in motion. So. So, Dave, so David, what what are your thoughts about this unprecedented moment in history, and and what what do you think could be, uh, uh, you know, what do you think could be a contribution that NBA players, uh, who many of whom come from working class communities and Black communities, how how can they contribute? Because that's also a huge part of this conversation right now with the NBA reopening uh, coming up. Right. So, I mean, I've had these conversations for the last you know three months. I helped. I helped with um, some guys make decisions and was really helping with a, a, a group of guys behind the scenes about um, you know, really thinking out, you know, what to do. Um, you know, the first thing I'll say, and this is a very, uh, it, it's always nuanced, right? Like that's one of the things that we don't do in this country is the two things. We decontextualize most topics and most conversations. We speak and phrase things completely out of context. And then the other thing is, um, you know, we just don't, tell the truth. Um, so part of what I would say for NBA players particularly, right, is like, if you don't know, first of all, shut up. And if you don't know, don't allow people who do know um, to put a battery in your back, like James Harden did the other day. He shows up with a, a blue, whatever that mask was. A Blue Lives Matter, yeah, yeah mask. He has, no he has no clue, but he let somebody put a battery in his back 
you know, and and again, try to politicize what he's doing. Um, and, I, and again, I get the game that folks play. But like you said, we're at a we're at an unprecedented time in this country's history. And it's not just because of the, the pandemic. and It's not just because of the uh, racism that is embedded into the very bloodstream of this society, but it is about literally the nature of the society that we live in. Like our society does not function in a way that is conducive for human life in general. And then beyond that, it is even more detrimental and dangerous for the marginalized and the people in marginalized communities um, to speak specifically, right, black and brown communities in this society who have been who have been at a complete disadvantage for God knows how many years. We have to ask ourselves and I was on a panel a call yesterday with a bunch of folks and I said this to them. I said, look, you know, you can people can write checks. People can donate to charities. People can talk and make all of these these generalized statements, Black Lives Matter and equality and all these equity and all these other statements. I said, but if we aren't literally talking about fundamentally changing the way this thing operates, and it's not just putting a bandage on a wound, I mean a full restructuring, because I, and I heard uh, Dr. West say this a few weeks ago, this nation hasn't shown itself, and this system hasn't shown itself the ability to reform on its own, right? The, the system has not shown itself capable of implementing things and putting in social policies that legitimately undergird marginalized societies and marginalized people in this country. And um, I've been having this debate with a few with a few folks, but I don't believe that we can change who we are outside of this country without first changing who we are inside this country. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have these, you know, we are an imperial dominator. We uh, have this imperial lust that we haven't been able to get rid of. And, um, you know, I would say Du Bois wrote about this and uh, even John Hope Franklin mentioned this and from Freedom to Slavery, right? The dilemma of American society with this group of African people that have contributed so much to the development and the evolution of this society, yet to this day still have to beg for the scraps, right? Have to beg for the equal protection under the law. And it has put us behind other nations in, in the fact that nations are united internally against the imperial wishes of the United States. And I know that, you know, our mainstream media doesn't cover these things and don't talk about these things but these are the things that in my opinion are of the utmost importance right now because we can no longer feed this idea that people just you know people want to be american or want to be in america um, just because america is who she is because of social media because of the access to information the veil has been ripped off and so there is no hiding, right, or pretending about the true nature of this society anymore. And it has put us in a bind. Now, to, to, to pile on top, not only do we have all of these sort of 
social markers that are being hit, right, in terms of police violence and uh, the, the food deserts that we have, the, health, the crisis in the, in the healthcare industry, um, then specifically the crisis against black people in the healthcare industry where, you know, black women are being, you know, we got stories of black women being underprescribed medication and all of these different things um, really makes this time uh, unprecedented and, and people needing to have a true coming, uh, coming to Jesus moment, if you will. Where it's like, look, there are no more turns to make, right? Um, we've got to make this one decision that we've got to make, and it's this decision right down the middle to completely change the nature of this society. And you know, as someone who I, when I was younger, I would say I used to I used to dream about liberation or dream about a society where people were truly free, and it was a naive dream right because when we're young we're watch, they make us watch eyes on the prize and i don't know you know how many how many of your viewers are familiar with teaneck but teaneck new jersey was like this test town where we were going to try all these racial uh you know unifying things you know integrating the schools and then you know making sure that all the sports teams the local rec teams had evenly distributed black kids and white kids and i mean they were making this kind of uh, this effort, right? It was, it was, that's part of Teenex, Teenex legacy. And, uh, when we're young, we're saying, okay, well, we watched eyes on the prize. Well, okay, well we watch roots. And then as you get older, you realize like that, it's just not enough. And, you know, I say all that to say that where we are now and, you know, part of your original question was what does the NBA do? I've been telling the guys like we're at a stage where, you know, writing checks to people and charities is just not enough. It's a great gesture, um, but it's not enough because that's not going to change the structures that we're dealing with. And um, that's really my, that's really where I feel we are right now is we've got to fundamentally change um, how we operate on a on a major scale, right? How we administer healthcare. We need Medicare for all in this in this country. There's really no other option at this point. Um, and, you know, obviously going into, you know, political, you know, jargon is what, you know, um, Senator Sanders was was trying to promote in his agenda, which I felt was the closest thing to, you know, the right prescription for what we needed. And we saw the Democratic establishment come in and bully him out of the way. And I thought that, again, people being naive. And thinking that, well, we can just keep doing the same things we've been doing. We can mark somebody out like Joe Biden and say, hey, you know, let's vote for this guy because he was down with Obama. You know, people have woken up and um, this is a serious, serious moment in this country. And the last thing I'll say to answer your question is the reason the other reason and I know we'll get into this later. But the other reason why it is an unprecedented moment, it is because of the way other nations are responding now. Right. Because you have a legitimate world power in China. And I said this a few weeks ago on an Instagram video. I don't do many of them, but I just I'm like, yo, like I know you folks haven't. I know people haven't read. Right. They don't listen. People just they don't. And the chances that American people know more about the Chinese system and Chinese culture than the Chinese know about America. Slim to none. Right. Like China's China's last 70, 75 years have literally been designed. And I think I heard that you say this 
It has been designed around the way to respond to American, and they've built their society in a way to defend itself against that constant imposition, right, of Western imperialism. And in the midst of all of that, uh, they have still been able to eke out, um, you know, some of the greatest advancements in human history, right? They've they've built their society and climbed to the top of, and, 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 and most economists will tell you that China is at the top of the pecking order now. Um, they've done it without war. They've done it without invasion. They've done it without bombing and blowing people up and, uh, you know, covert operations and disrupting other societies. They've literally built a, um, a, a legitimate threat, in my opinion, um, to the balance of the world. And as, a, as people in America and Americans are part of American society, um, we have been misled. Um, I tell people, you know, the first time I went to Africa, and I don't know if you've been, but you know that when you go to Africa, you immediately, if you land at night, you know, you're like, man, it feels good. Once the lights come on in the morning, you really see, and then you get the chance to drive outside and, and move around. You look at Africa and you say, yeah, they told us stories about Africans living in huts and things like that. But if you look at Africa the right way, you'll see that Africa looks like a home after it's been ransacked by robbers, right? Africa mm. looks like it's been looted. It looks like a store or, a, you know, a home that somebody ran in and stole everything, the couch, the TV, and left you with nothing. That's what Africa looks like, it's just in my opinion. It, it, you get the sense that it's been looted and taken advantage of. But when I went to China, it was different because the lie, the idea that we all have to kind of deal with is that there could be a function in society outside of the control of the Western imperial power structure, right? Like that is something that you say, well, damn, they don't accept really any part of the way we do things, but they're doing, they're living their own lives and they're living in a society that is producing, like I said, some of the greatest advancements in human history. And um, that is why this moment is so different. And of course, it, you know, domestically, we're not going to talk about it. The only people talking about China are these warmongering hawks who are using um, antiquated and outdated, uh, whatever they're called, manifestos or whatever these guys are reading. But this stuff, these guys are reading colonial manifestos. I mean, come on, man, it, it, it's plain as day. So the idea that these sort of old tricks will work um, or will help us in any way, um, the idea that isolationism, which I, I believe this Trump, these Trumpers are moving toward, is going to help us in any way, um, you know, it's, it's 300 million plus people in the U.S. only. And just for context, um, the Chinese basketball community is 300 plus million people, just for context. So... We're dealing, we're dealing with a whole new dilemma, if you will, in how we figure out how we best structure this society to give ourselves a chance in the future. And I've been trying to have that conversation with people that I know who, who have influence, who have power. Um, and it's, you know, people are like, yo, are you, are you serious? I'm like, listen, man, you know, China is going to eliminate poverty this year. 
You know, I think I last I read this like 1.6 percent poverty in China with 1.4 billion people. Right. They've made an effort to address the way that human life is actually governed. Right. And they've made a serious uh, attempt to figure out the best way in which they can get and make their citizens as productive as they possibly can be. That's why they can build 11 room hospitals in 10 days like they did with at the beginning of the of the covid outbreak. So it, we are just dealing with something that, you know, we've we've kicked the can down the field. Um, you know, we've tried to use these red scare tactics and we've tried to, you know, use the propaganda to keep nations at bay. Um, but it's not going to work against a deliberately organized country like China. It's just not going to work. And we've got to, we've got to accept that. Um, and again, I, I, I can go on for days, but you know, we just got to accept that we are in a different time in global history, right? It's not just American history, but it is this global, um, push, um, and that has been made against the imposition of America into other parts of the world. And China is, you know, China's the top trade partner with every nation on earth. And they have logically just filled the holes that, that you know, Western imperialism has made and left in, in the world. So you blow a nation up, China rebuilds it. That's, that works in their favor. And that's what they've done. And we use all kind of propaganda language against these folks um, that, again, if, you, if, you've, if you've studied the 60s, it's the same language, literally the same language. In the late 1940s, when China got its independence, you know, people don't even know that in our country, right? People don't even understand that China was colonized for 108 years or whatever it was and don't realize that that's what Hong Kong is about, right? It's about colonization. And, um, you know, when, when uh, Daryl Morey of the M, he was with the Houston Rockets or whatever, he made a yes, comment about yes. Hong Kong early in the year. And I was like, yo, man, it's, yeah, you're not going to do this. And I, I got on the phone with a bunch of NBA guys. I was like, yo, don't let them, don't let them pull you into this bullshit because it's, it's the Iraq war, weapons of mass destruction type propaganda. Again. And we see it again with the jerseys, right? The, uh, the idea that uh, Black Lives Matter is going to be on the jerseys. Why not? You know, we had uh, the racist senators, uh, uh, Holly, Josh Holly, right. uh, Tom Cotton, these guys uh, talking about how why why isn't Hong Kong free Hong yeah. Kong on the jerseys? And, you know, it's the same thing. And then you had other folks who may not even align with them saying, well, this is about free speech. And so, of course, all of it should be on the table and the right. NBA shouldn't be regulating either, you know, one or the other. I'm going to say it outright. I believe that if the NBA is on the right side of history, especially its players, because I think the players are the workers in, in, in the NBA, uh, if they're on the right side of history, then they would, as you did, uh, say, no, we're not going to support a movement that's undermining um, an entire country at the right. behest of the United States. Uh, that's just not what right. principled workers, what principled right. people do. Right, right. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's going to be, in my opinion, um, I just don't think it's. I just don't think it's going to work. I mean, you know, obviously China has changed its foreign policy. You know, I've witnessed in the last probably two years, I would say, 
that their foreign diplomats have become a lot more outspoken. They are swiftly rebutting um, the propaganda. They barely give it a, a few hours to get a foot, right? So it's they're making this, this consistent effort to continue to shine the light on the truth uh, and push people toward, um, you know, logical understanding. And for our society, again, man, it's just, you know, we've got to figure out a way to get out of this. And, um, you know, I tell people all the time, I, you know, I encourage people to vote locally, you know, um, in terms of, you know, your basic participation, right, is voting locally. Just, just when they're, when, just find out who the DA is going to be, who the sheriff is going to be, find out their politics. If you can contribute to uh, uh, making sure that someone is in there that's on the right side of justice, is on the right side of uh, right for the people, um, you can have an impact voting locally. But, you know, what our political national politics have turned into, it, it you know, I don't even, I can't even take serious people um, who mention Hong Kong, right? If you talk about Hong Kong and if you talk about China and human rights violations, like, and maybe I've got to get better at this, but I've got to figure out a way to at least let people finish their sentence. Because once I hear that, I'm like, dude, I'm not going down this road with you, right? You, you know, you can't point me to any factual data that can support the claims that you're making. And they're just consistent. Um, uh, and again, I, you know, I, I'm a, I, I study history. Um, I try to, um, keep myself and involve myself around historical context because I feel like historical context can give us the best way to read, you know, what's going on today. And, you know, again, like I said, if you study China, particularly late in the colonial period, uh, the late 1940s, man, they, they have been on this. They were able to organize themselves around the idea that they'll never be dominated and controlled again, right? That's what the hundred years of shame is about. And um, the idea that this is sort of a political ideology that they teach their children about the period of time, the 108 years in China's history, the hundred or so years of history, that China worked to the benefit of other people. And China was controlled by other people other than the Chinese. And that that idea of someone else controlling China, um, China losing its sovereignty, and then ultimately losing the connection with its past, with its illustrious thousands of years of history, uh, is something, again, politically, that they've organized their society around. And we have to be able to understand what we're facing. Uh, in the sporting world, in basketball, for instance, we adjust. Some coaches adjust right away. Um, you know, I, I, when I played with, with, with Coach Popovich in San Antonio for a year, he wasn't stubborn about adjusting. Older man, but I saw him 30 seconds into a game say, no, 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 we're not doing it anymore. We're going to go the other way, you know, because he knew, you know, I guess he'd been through it enough to understand that you've got to have the willingness to just adjust, to scrap plan A and say it's not going to work. There's no sense of continuing to go down this road. Let's figure out what's going to work and what's going to work in the best interest of the team. And this is where athletes can help, you know, in terms of the political discussion. You know, we're, we understand how to lose. It gets to a point where you've lost enough games, you know how to handle the emotions of losing a game at a buzzer, losing a game that you really, really prepared for. When I was in Indiana, we used to work. We worked our ass off for years, months, trying to you know, get ourselves to the point of beating Miami. We got close a, a couple times, never could do it. Um, but we understood how to handle going through the process and still not winning and failing. Um, 
And so athletes have that to contribute. Athletes can help particularly people in this society. I was um, introduced to uh, an author yesterday, and I think he wrote this book called, and I haven't read it yet, but he wrote a book called How Democracies Die, I Believe. Um, uh, and he was talking about the fact that America has to, if America wants to continue as a democratic state, it has to figure out how to be a, a diverse democracy. And this is the issue right at hand in American society. It is, you know, white people and the group that have controlled the power dynamics of this society um, have to allow other segments of this society their right at democracy, right? The, the society that we're all promised, um, to use the words of, of Tavis Smiley, and to go toward that place, to get to a place where black and brown communities aren't overlorded by police, right? Black and brown people own the businesses and the buildings and the lands and the communities that they live in, right? These are, these are the things that equate to justice in the modern day. Um, because as long as we continue down this road where we're going to say, well, we're going to just be what we what we've always been, it's not going to work anymore. Um, simply because, again, there are, there's outside pressure now for America to not be what it's always been. Right. So if you've got a country that is getting ready to eliminate poverty, has lifted up 600 plus million people out of poverty a country that is educating its people ridiculously, a country that's heading toward a life expectancy of 80. Uh, they've raised their, you know, China has lifted their literacy rates un in unprecedented uh, in the last 40, 50 years. If you're facing a society like that and you continue to say, well, we're going to do things our way where we're locking people up, we are undereducating, miseducating, uh, we're using propaganda in the place of real journalism. Um, you know, we continue to have these imperialistic exhibitions of sending troops all over the world and having war military bases everywhere and sort of continuing to on this path of we're going to do what we need to do to keep our nation first without the consideration and the sovereignty of other nations or the acceptance of other cultures simply doesn't seem like a future um, that's possible, in my opinion. Um, because we just, you know, I, you know, recently you can see that the European Union is questioning nations like Germany by saying, hey, man, you know, France is like, hey, we got to do what we have to do for us. And they're not necessarily bending and uh, to the will of America. And um, again, it comes back to fundamentally our ability to to change. We've got to change course right now. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, no you, you brought up so much there, and uh, we're going to, you know, end on this last question, but I, before I get to it, I think one of the major questions that we talk about on Black Agenda Report is power, right? A lot of what you talk about is about this struggle for power, right? Black people struggle for power in their own communities, community control over the police, community control of their institutions. Internationally, what does that look like? It looks like the U.S. imperial hegemon using its power over world affairs, economic, political, and military to exert its domination in all of those areas. That's what we're seeing with the U.S. trying to bully China. But we have a dynamic here, and that's why I wrote about American exceptionalism uh, last year in my published book, was because it was pretty clear um, over the last decade that 
the United States, decade plus, arguably, the United States was entering a period of precipitous decline in every single area, that its status as an imperial hegemon was wholly reliant on the military because the capitalist economy was in a, a point of stagnation of um, a, a period where there's no going to be no recovery. We see right. that with this Great Depression added on to the stagnation and the leftovers of the 2008 crash and the crashes before it. We see with the escalation of things like mass incarceration, of racist policing, all of these things are very connected. There's a war at home and a war abroad. And American exceptionalism seeks to turn all struggles and all developments into reform projects that can inevitably make the United States a more effective evil. That's what we talk about a lot at Black Agenda Report is how uh, what you were saying when you were talking about uh, the need to change course and how black people need control and power over their institutions. Well, we've had a development over the last 40 years where there have been more black leaders being placed in positions right. of power, but these leaders are not representative of the interests of the whole community. And you have a really considered effort to to basically render them as such and to misrepresent them as such, which creates all sorts of problems that we continue to see today. We call at Black Agenda Report the Obama period, the lonely period, because when we would make criticisms of foreign policy um, and connect Obama to that, when we would make criticisms of domestic policy and connect Obama to them, uh, it would often be met with scorn, ridicule, rejection. Right. Now we're in a period where, as you said, the mask and the veil has been completely stripped off. Uh, you have all sections of the political establishment all in with war against China, a new Cold War. All sections of the political establishment are wholly indebted to a corporate capitalist class that is committing vicious austerity. So austerity and war are the future of the United States. It's pretty clear. But you still have this instability, both on the world stage with China leading the world, as well as other countries um, alongside it, leading the world in a different direction, uh, a more multipolar direction, a direction that seeks economic and political independence, right. um, that seeks power in a peaceful way, um, whatever the contradictions. And then you have the United States on a decline and seeking to drag the world along with it. Right. So here we are now, and we have this question of power still on the table, and it seems like the movement for Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement against police brutality, is being under heavy assault, not just by the federal law enforcement agents that are coming out to beat protesters over the head, to incarcerate them, send them to black sites like Holman Square, but you also have an ideological assault, right? So this idea that symbolism is the only thing that really matters here. Again, the NBA jerseys question comes to mind. What should NBA players do? Should they speak out? Should they play? But a lot of those things don't necessarily have much of an impact at all on the material conditions. So in your perspective, David, uh, how do we get this question of power on the table? Yeah, well, you know, I would say so, you know, you, you use the interesting word, placed. So you have these 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 black figureheads being placed, and all, it's always the question of who's doing the placement, right? Is it the will of the people and the communities putting these people or voting these people in, or are they being specifically handpicked because they can, at the surface or on face face value, pretend to represent the interests and the, the ideas of, of, of what marginalized black communities feel in this country, or are they just a face representing the corporate interests 
right? The political and uh, uh, economic elites of this society. So, you know, that that idea of people being placed, I think, is very is very um, is very telling, right? Because that's what happens, right? Like people get placed and put in these in these situations. The idea of power, though. Um, People have to control the institutions in which they govern, right? I think, the, or they govern them. And the institutions that govern people have to be organized around the best interest of those people. And if you just think, again, think about our history, we have never been organized that way, right? There's always, this nation has always needed somebody to step on to feel good about itself. Always needed to subjugate other people, uh, to feel good about itself. We're at a stage now where, again, it's not about that. It's not about appearance anymore. The language being used is very clear. You know, it's some nerd stuff. And I know people don't listen to when people, when someone like um, Pompeo gives a speech or the, the attorney general gives a speech. But if you listen to the language that they're using, it's very clear. It is imperial language. Um, and it is, again, language that is detrimental to the health of this society that's already in deep decline. Yes, yes, uh, very, very well said. We are going to close here. Thank you so much, David, for coming on. Uh, we covered so much. We will have to have you back on again. Next time, we'll definitely have Margaret join us. We can have a larger conversation. Um, and, and thank you for connecting with Black Agenda Report. Please follow David West. We will have his Twitter. We will have um, other ways of getting in touch with him and um, also want to plug his organization, right? You are the COO yeah. of the Historical Basketball League, which yeah. is doing well, amazing work. If you want to close off on that point. We changed the name, the Professional Collegiate League. We changed a few months ago. Yeah, but the Professional Collegiate League is a league that we're working to challenge the exploitation at the collegiate basketball level. Um, you know, it's, it's really one of the mainstays of exploitation that we have in this country that is out front and center. Um, again, you know, young black, predominantly young black men working, not being paid for their labor and that labor being directly monetarily beneficial for everyone but them. Um, and so we've created a system uh, that we feel is, is more equitable, um, is in better in the, in, is more suited and in the better interest of the players. Um, and it starts with compensation. These guys do a job. They do a great job. They, they literally produce billions of dollars um, for different layers of society. And they're the only people in that world that can't participate in it. So we feel like we built a built a, a, a league that meets that need for, for young athletes. So, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed this, man. I appreciate the time, you know. And uh, like I said, I'd love to come back home. And I really enjoy this space because I don't get to talk about this that often. Yes, yes. And we all need to talk about these issues so yeah. much more. Thank you so much, David, for joining me today. And please tune in, subscribe, like the video, share it. And we will be back with you again soon uh, with Margaret.